welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. All right, everybody, welcome along to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Pierce. This week is going to be the conclusion of our three-part series on the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, which looked at a longitudinal study of people's lives from the time they were 13 to their death, and then now also includes their children and grandchildren. If this is the first part of this series that you're listening to, I recommend you go back to the beginning to learn more about the details of the study, the other studies the authors pulled from in reporting this data, and then also the other discussions. The book is a practical attempt to distill lessons from this long-term research about happiness and distill it down for us as individuals. This is going to be the last three chapters of the book. And I'm going to dive right in. If you're interested in the show notes uh, and my notes from the book, they're available in the description of this episode, all the notes in detail. So if you want to read more, you can look there. There's also a link to buy the actual book to read it yourself. Okay. Chapter eight, family matters. This is about our families. Previously, we've talked about changes in our relationships, the idea of social fitness, how relationships change over the course of our lives, and then also specifics of uh, a romantic partner. Now we're talking about family. Family is important, uh, of course, (laughs) and uh, our experiences with family as kids do influence the rest of our lives. There's an ongoing debate in psychology about the nature and size of this effect of our childhoods, but it's generally accepted that the things we experience as a child do frame our realities moving forward. Our perceptions and experiences of family when we were kids influence how we conceptualize of our own families as adults. For example, beliefs and patterns of behaviors that we observed in our childhood home we may adopt. The happiness study the Harvard study pulls from a rich sample and sample of uh, types of families, both traditional and non-traditional, and from the perspectives of manly, many family members. So the kids, the parents, siblings, grandparents, grandkids, all also through the different stages of their lives. And this chapter in the book is an attempt to identify overlap between those different families and patterns that we can learn from. The one constant is definitely change. And... How families react to change is a key determinant of the quality of familial relationships. So change comes, that's the one consistent, that's the one thing that everyone has experienced in their lives. And it's unavoidable, largely. So how you as a family adapt to that change is integral. There's also this... um, idea of non-traditional families and kind of chosen family, which would be um, essentially a group of adults who get together and intentionally create a familial structure to fill the gaps of their own childhoods. Um, 
this is kind of part of the idea of what matters is not just who we consider to be our family, but how our clo- what our closest relationships mean to us over the course of our lives. So essentially, you know, being close to these people, whether they're your blood family or not, is really the imp- more important than their actual title. Um, and specifically to these non-traditional families, uh, there's some examples in the book of um, family structures in the LGBT community, uh, essentially someone taking a father role or mother role in a loose affiliation of individuals um, who may not even live together, but they kind of work together and uh, to reframe their experience of family. If it was dissatisfactory or traumatic from when they were young, the authors um, contend that these reparenting efforts are experienced in context or in relief of our actual families and actual family experiences. So their assessment is that these reparenting efforts are very good, but there's no way to kind of unsee what we saw as kids, essentially. This gets back to the ghost of our childhood. So we inherit physical memorabilia, right? Things handed down and also psychological patterns. These would be specifically be habits, perspectives, and modes of behaviors that we absorb from our family members. And our most important experiences, good and bad, are not just memories, but they're emotional events that leave tangible impressions on us. Perhaps you're thinking of some of your own as I even read that out. So this leads to the question of what can be done, you know, for those people who had a rough childhood, can they change it or make, give themselves the best possible chance of success? And the answer is absolutely yes. So the Kauai study was done by Emily Werner, a researcher who documented and brought into the study every child born on the island of Kauai in 1955. So the island of Kauai is in Hawaii. If you want to learn more about Hawaii or Hawaii, listen to my episode with Kamaka Diaz, um, host of the Hawaii Verse podcast. Anyway, so on 19, in 1955, um, there were 690 kids born on Kauai and this researcher got them all in the study. And there's a clear connection between an adverse childhood and adult struggle. But there's also hope for those kids. About a third of those kids who experienced an adverse childhood did develop into attentive, kind, and emotionally well-adjusted adults. The study identified a protective factor as at least one caring adult in their life consistently. And the authors point to the ability to be open and clear about our experiences as a way to recruit support from others. So adults who can talk about a rough childhood can actually recruit that support. Then the more research looks into uh, the families in the study. A lot of them in Boston were first-generation immigrants to the U.S. And they were looking to record how warm and supportive were these children's families' environments of the studies. So these are not people who are now dead, but we're going all the way back in time to when they were kids in the um, 
in the uh, Depression era. So the hypothesis um, and and the idea was to look at the bookend data from this. So early in their lives, their, how warm and supportive were their children's, these kids' family environments, and then late in their lives, um, how do they turn out as adults? And there were correlations. They weren't super strong, strong enough statistically to be, you know, rubber stamped or like a guarantee. But the authors relate them to a long, thin thread tugging in their adult lives, these, these childhood experiences. And the, the men in the study who had warm and close experiences in their early family life were more likely to be able to connect with and depend on and support their partner, which we've talked about in the last chapter is essential for success in a relationship and happiness overall. A critical link between childhood experience and positive adult social connection is our ability to process emotion. And that ability to process emotion is malleable. It is, it is changing. Generally, people get better at emotional processing as they age, but it can actually happen earlier in life with intention and direction. And they reiterate this connection between early childhood life experiences and adult outcome it, the connection exists, but it's not definitive or irreversible for better or worse. For example, people who had good childhoods turned out to be unhappy and isolated, and also people with bad childhoods turned out to be connected and caring. There's an example of uh, Neil. He was a son of Irish immigrants. He started working from 10 years old in Boston, shining shoes in the rich uh, Irish neighborhood. He had a warm family environment as a young child, but then his mom's alcoholism started to cause friction and eventually uh, tore the family apart largely. He goes and fights in the Korean War, marries, has kids, and learns emotional regulation through all these experiences. His father was the protective barrier in this equation, so his father was very connected with him and a support despite his mother's challenges. Now, fast forward, Neil's family of his own, his youngest child, his daughter, struggles socially at school as a, as a young child, as a teen, and has trouble making friends. As a young adult, she develops a drinking problem, fights depression, and is struggling to transition to independent adulthood. The authors then kind of point to this Western and specifically U.S. concept of us, you know, we should be able to deal with everything or solve all problems by ourselves and they just kind of highlight how unrealistic that is and that specifically in the u.s it seems to be figure it out or just ignore it or stop trying to deal with it they point out that facing problems in, in family head-on also means sitting with uncomfortable feelings and conversations giving people space and then trying again specific to neil's experiences with his daughter it's natural for us to feel responsible for our kids' successes and failures, even when much of it is unrelated to us. So I thought that was very interesting. You know, as a parent, maybe it's a little unrealistic to take blame or rewards for the things your children achieve or fail at. Childhood and parenting matter, according to the authors, but no single element of a person's life fully shapes their future. So definitely a message of hope for 
anyone out there who's struggling with their memories of their own childhood. Short answer to the question, is there hope? Is yes, there's absolutely hope. The authors use the analogy that anything we experience at any time can change what we expect from others. And life is a long opportunity for corrective experiences to change our traumatic experiences from childhood, if they were traumatic. Therapy itself works partially because it's a connection with a caring, consistent adult. So how do we let these perspective-altering positive experiences penetrate our psyches? According to the authors, you have to tune into difficult feelings rather than trying to ignore them. Definitely a theme here. Notice when you're having experiences that are more positive than you expect. Try to catch excuse me, try to catch other people when they are behaving well, similar to an exercise that was recommended with your partner in the last chapter. And lastly, this one I find really important. Remain open to the possibility for people to behave differently than you expect. The more ready we are to be surprised by people, the more likely we are to notice when they do something that doesn't match our expectation. I'll repeat that. Remain open to the possibility for people to behave differently than expected. Next in the section is confronting your current family expectations. There's the you always, you never trap. So uh, my wife, she always leaves the dishes on the table or my cousin, he, he always drinks too much or my sister, <laughs> she's always doing yoga. Instead of getting locked into those mental patterns, ask yourself, what is it? What is there here that I've never noticed before? This comes down to, again, the idea that no one in life can ever be fully known, and there's always more to discover, both about ourselves and other people. If you make these discoveries, they'll inform and change the biases we have about our families. Problems and trouble that we deal with with our families are worth the struggle, and actually... According to the authors, family struggle and problems often arise when the people around us change life stages and roles, and but we don't notice. So their lives change, but we expect the same things from them. I thought that was very insightful. And why do family relationships matter? Why are they worth the trouble? It's because they impact us in ways that other relationships do not. We can't replace someone who's known us our whole lives or someone we have known for our whole lives. Here's some principles for improving your own family relationships. Every family is different, but these principles can help cultivate strong bonds for immediate and extended family. The first one is to start with yourself. So what automatic reactions do you have to your family? Are you passing judgment based on past experiences and preventing an opportunity for something different to happen? Notice when you find yourself wanting someone to be different than they are. What if I just let this person be themselves without passing judgment? How would this moment be different? Notice the importance of routines. Family relationships are often defined by regular contact, regular get-togethers, phone calls, meals, and texts together to serve as a glue for the family. As life changes and gets more complicated, finding new rituals can help keep family connections alive. Specifically for an immediate family, Regular family dinners are documented in research to have very positive effects. 
specifically on the children in the family, with higher GPAs, higher self-esteem, lower rates of substance abuse, lower rates of teen pregnancy, and lower rates of depression for those kids. Despite the good things we know about eating eating dinner together, in the Western world, more adults are eating meals alone than in the past. And specifically in the U.S., about half of adults eat their meals alone, or half of the meals that a U.S. adult eats are eaten alone. Remember that every member of the family has their own store of buried treasure, and look at meals as a way to discover those things. Discover those unique things that they only the individual member of your family can provide that may be hidden in plain sight. Looking back to the example of Neil, whose family life was uh, transformed by his mother's alcoholism and who grew up poor to an immigrant family, as an adult, he didn't run from his challenges. He didn't perpetuate the things that made his childhood hard, and he gave his family the gift of steady presence which is an incredible model. Chapter nine, the good life at work, investing in connections. So we're making the shift here to our working lives. We may not be able to choose what we do for a living, but we can make work work for us. Looking at the United Kingdom, it is in the middle of the pack as far as the global workforce and amount of time worked. United States is a bit similar in this um, global assessment of how hours worked. So this is a good uh, a good example looking at the UK as a good median. So over the course of their lifetime, the average UK worker will spend eight thousand eight hundred hours socializing with friends, nine thousand five hundred hours in activity with their partner, and one hundred and twelve thousand hours working. That's thirteen years. The triad of life, of home life, work life, and the influence they have in each other is something I took from the authors. So we often conceptualize our work lives and our home lives being distinct, but they influence each other and we have a relationship with each of those things and those two things have a relationship with each other too. In the, in the study, it was a common concern of a spillover effect of work in, interfering with our home lives. Here, think about this. Our partners and families may only have the barest of ideas what we're feeling when work ends, but they often bear the brunt of the emotion. When you come home upset, that's what happens. Mark, one of the authors, did a study to quantify the effects of a difficult work day on intimate relationships. He found that rough work days are linked with changes in nightly interactions between partners, and for women, they become angrier. For men, they become more withdrawn after a hard day of work. They acknowledge that we feel what we feel, and if those feelings are real, the authors are saying, but you don't have to let those emotions have their way with you. Some practical tips would be, if you do come home upset, recognize and accept that you are upset. Recognize and accept that you are upset, and acknowledge those feelings come from something that happened during the workday. Get present. Ask yourself, Ask your partner, rather, how their workday was and really pay attention. And also acknowledge that a relationship with work is challenging, but also relationships at work create challenges too. So relationships with the actual people at work. 
particularly if there's a, a dearth or a lack of connection at the workplace. If you think about it, if we feel disconnected from others at work, that means we feel lonely for the majority of our waking hours. There's a strong link between low satisfaction jobs and lonely jobs. Loneliest, the loneliest jobs are also reported to be the least satisfying. And we know it's a health risk, right, from the data from the previous chapters about being lonely. Research has shown that people who have a best friend at work are more engaged with their work. And women are nine times as likely to be engaged in their jobs if they strongly agree on a survey that they have a better friend at work, a best friend at work, excuse me. That note could be wrong, and maybe nine sounds very high, it could be three, but it definitely is a significant improvement in engagement for women at work if they strongly agree they have a best friend at work. Uh, the authors have seen it in their careers as therapists that work dynamics definitely impact home life. They can correlate that from personal experiences. And in the realm of gender relations and gender norms, women's responsibilities have changed dramatically at work. There have since, say, the generation of when the first generation of study participants were living, women have more responsibility and more power at work, but their workload at home hasn't been reduced. So they still have large expectations to do family work and their career. In therapy, men often feel they are doing an equal part, but in reality, they're doing less than they estimate. Examples would be, it takes 45 minutes to cook dinner, and it takes 15 minutes to do the dishes. It takes 30 minutes to do math homework with the child, and 10 minutes to read them a bedtime story. Their assessment is that the time burden still falls most heavily on women in the modern world. And also they touch on the idea of not having work friends or not having friends at work. It's a common strategy to maintain professionalism, but it also exposes us to loneliness because if we're lonely at work, that means we're lonely during the majority of our waking hours. Moving on to mentorship. Mentoring younger generations and sharing our experiences are part of the flow of work and part of the joy of work. Also being mentored, of course. Uh, transitions happen in our work lives and in mentorship. So if I change jobs or I get promoted, the authors recommend bring some awareness to your work relationships. How will my work relationships be impacted by this change? What can I do to protect them or m maintain them after this change happens? And also, what are the new opportunities I have for connections here? The biggest transition perhaps is retiring. Uh, when we retire, we lose a way to provide value and feel meaningful to our customers and colleagues. When that's gone, we have to find a new way of mattering. Study participants miss their work relationships when they retire, more so than the actual work they, they actually did, and more so than the money they earned. But most people in the study didn't realize that the relationships were the important things until they were gone. Remember now back to this concept from the book, book's earlier chapters. Time is both a finite and unknown quantity. 
We know it's not permanent, but we don't know how much of it we have left. Talking about remote work, uh, it definitely has its trade-offs. It's more flexibility, but it's also less social connection. For working parents, for example, who work from home, now they're working and parenting at the same time, full-time, all day. And based on the historic trends, in this transition, we can expect that women will end up having more of the home life burdens than the men will. The authors recommend to stay aware of the relationships we have at work and take care of them as technology and the nature of work continues to change over the coming years. To make the most out of your work hours, uh, think about, think about just the con this is again, just using time and not wasting time. All the things that you maybe said, oh, I'll get to it tomorrow or I'll get to it eventually or I'll take that trip one day or, oh, I'll call that friend one day. And before you know it, years have gone by. So a way to get present would be who are the people I most appreciate at work and what do I like about them? Who's different from me in perspective or experiences and how can I learn from them? What conflicts can I resolve or what olive branches can I offer? What opportunities for connection are here and how can I set myself up to experience those connections? How well do I really know my coworkers? Who would I like to know more about? Many of the people, many of the happiest people in the study had good relationships at work, both with their work and with their workmates. And they took time to find the right mix of work and home life for themselves because everyone's different. The authors remind us that every workday is an important personal experience. And to that extent, we can enrich each one of these days with relationships. And we benefit from those enriching relationships. Essentially, the theory in this book, their whole thesis is that every workday is an important personal experience because every moment is an important personal experience that we're alive. Because what we experience and what we give our time to is our life. That's why I'm giving my time to this, my friends, this project, and to you to hopefully enrich and benefit your life. Okay, chapter 10. All friends have benefits. What does it mean as an adult to have a friend or to be a friend? We fall into these automatic patterns of behavior when it comes to friendships, giving what feels right or natural, and friendships often get deprioritized as family and work take the forefront. Young adults get married and they may see their friendships wither away or be deprioritized in these years. However, friendships have a much bigger impact on our adult lives than people think. They don't require our attention like other relationships. For example, work and home life. Work demands that you work or you stop losing money. Your partner demands your attention or you have a big problem. But friendships are more easily ignored. However, they can't take care of themselves. They will fade away if you don't nurture them. Why does it matter? Why do you need friends? Because when adversity strikes, as it always does, it is often friends who buffer us from the stormy weather of these experiences. Research shows that friends reduce our sense of hardship. That means they make stressful times less severe, and when stressful times do happen, they can decrease, decrease the impact and duration of that stress. We know that less stress and better stress management means that we're healthier overall. 
They cite it. They cite a number of studies, but this one is really astounding. So it was a study of 2,835 nurses who had breast cancer. And they asked about their friendships. Women with 10 or more friends were four times more likely to survive than women with no close friends of that sample of 2,835 nurses with breast cancer. Again, this makes sense if you think about evolutionary biology. biology. We're attuned to friendship. It helps everyone to have people around to solve problems and share resources, emotional resources in particular. Of the participants who fought in World War II in the study, those with more friends were less likely to come home with PTSD. Specific to the Broneville podcast, here's an interesting one. Many of the men in the study, their number of close friends dwindled as they aged, and most attributed to their own self-sufficiency. But contradicting their own statements, they also expressed a longing for more close friends. This is more of a cultural force than a predisposition that men have. The authors argue that men are not predisposed to this emotional stoicism, but it's actually the expectations we learn as boys that allow us to change our way that we relate. Studies of young boys show that they're just as engaged in quality time and the definition of a best friend is someone who we can share secrets with and who the boys can um, have intimate, honest conversations with. But as they age, boys are conditioned to show independence and masculinity. The closeness and intimacy of young boyhood is quietly discouraged. However, women are more expected to continue these friendships and as a result end up having to do more of the emotional lifting later in their lives in all of their relationships. Of a study of married couples in the study, 30% of the men said they were dissatisfied with the number and quality of their friendships, while only 6% of the women were. This piece about the boys being discouraged really speaks to my efforts with the podcast and something that, if you're listening, I assume relates with you too. It actually makes sense because... I can remember having intimate close friends who I shared secrets with when I was a boy, right? And those were my best friends. I can think of them exactly who they are right now very clearly. But I had to cultivate that type of emotional intimacy with other males as I got older consciously. It was definitely discouraged. And I'm so happy I did because now I have a group of close friends who I can call with real problems and have real conversations. Lillian Rubin. Uh, was a researcher, and she made the assessment that women tend to have more face-to-face relationships of sharing and connecting, while men have more side-by-side friendships, which would be centered around activity, which again corroborates. It makes sense. I'm, I do like to sit and talk, but I also like to go and do activities with my friends. This type of difference has been confirmed, but also there's some nuance to it. The gender difference in what men and women seek in relationships, friendships specifically, is smaller than we would probably expect given our cultural norms and our cultural assumptions. There's a small difference in expectations of these intimacy and the intimate sharing between friends, so among friends between genders. So men and women have a very small, uh, small difference in their expectations of intimate sharing. And in psychology, that means that a small difference means the overlap is the rule rather than the expectations. So more men and women have a similar shared expectation of intimacy and friendships. 
And all of that is just to say that most people want and need the same kind of intimacy in their friendships. There's also the importance of, quote, unimportant relationships. That would be kind of casual encounters. Some of the most beneficial relationships we have can actually be with people we don't spend a lot of time with or know that well. These small moments of interaction can boost our mood and balance out stress we feel. For me, it'd be the baristas at the coffee shops I go to. There's a guy who um, does the street sweeping down in Maniunk and Philly, and I see him, I, I tell him what's up, and I feel stoked to see him. Those little interactions um, definitely, like the book says, can boost our mood. There's also the importance of life stage-specific connections. So thinking about the life stages from the earlier in the book, young adulthood, or adolescence, young adulthood, midlife, and late life, doing and experiencing those things with your friends at the same time is very important. So think about if you're an athlete in high school trying out for the team with your buddies, the first semester of college with your peers, young parents raising a family with a sibling or friends who also have young uh, kids of the same age. The, the takeaway here is that our friendships are the easiest relationships to neglect because they're voluntary, but they need our upkeep. Some practical steps here. Learn to listen to your friends. For example, if they mention a medical concern, really listen. Uh, apparently, according to the data, People often don't share about medical conditions because they don't want to be a burden. So make an effort to learn about your friends and what's going on in their lives. Consider the rifts in your life and try to potentially let old grudges go. Think about your social routines. There's a very impactful story here. A gentleman named Andrew, he ended up um, growing up marrying someone who didn't want him to have friends and he didn't have any friends and the fit in his fifties, uh, he was in the study and in those years he was really struggling. He was in a loveless marriage. He didn't do anything besides work. Uh, he was suicidal. He attempted suicide and then eventually he went to therapy, uh, left his wife and then started to go to the gym to the, to the fitness club and made friends and the transition was was outstanding. In his late 60s, he was well-connected. Uh, he still felt lonely because he lived alone and he wasn't married, but he had a rich social network and he was much happier. So if you're feeling adrift in your life and you're feeling that you're alone and past the point of doing anything to change it, it's never too late to change it. Uh, story, the story of Andrew absolutely corroborates that. The bravery of this man to change his life is is, is outstanding. It's never too late to change, and in conclusion, it's never too late to be happy. It doesn't matter how old you are, where you are in the life cycle, whether you're married or unmarried, introverted or extroverted, everyone can make a positive turn in their lives. In short, good relationships keep us healthier, happier, and help us live longer. The authors contend that basic education about relationships should be added to the three R's. Uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic and education plus relationships. The data is good so far on social and emotional learning, which is a type of education that incorporates these ideas. And the last thing the authors will share with you 
is that the good life is not found by living a life of luxury or ease, but by facing challenges head on and standing fully in the present moment. So I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of the good life lessons from the world's longest scientific study of happiness. I certainly have. It's been a pleasure and I found so many things of meaning and of value and of insight in this, in this book. Um, I'm just going through my notes here. It looks like about 20 pages of notes. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed it. Please share this episode out with someone in your life. Use it as a way to connect. You can say, Hey, I was listening to Thomas in this podcast. I was reading this book and I want to invest in our friendship. I want to spend more quality time together. I want to go through my life more intentionally. I want to develop communication skills. I want to believe that I can make a positive change in my life. All those things are possible and within the grasp of your hand. So I hope you take the chance to do it. Head to the show notes for these full notes. Also a link to buy the book and read it yourself. I definitely recommend you do so. Thank you all very much for listening. Again, this is Thomas Pierce with the Bro Nouveau podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll see you next Friday for next week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast.